Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Well, one of the rituals that takes place in our house almost every morning happens in our living room. I have a brown chair that I go and I sit in most every morning, and when our two-and-a-half-year-old Everett wakes up, he makes sure that he gets his milk, I get my coffee, and we sit together in my brown chair. Not that brown chair, this brown chair, and we read books and stories together. And it's one of those beautiful and simple, pure joys in life to enjoy those moments and those stories with them. And really, he loves the stories, and I think that's natural because as humans, we all love stories, and we love storytelling. It's what we do. It helps us to explain not just what has happened to us, but it also helps explain how things have affected us. It gives us the opportunity to interpret situations to get meaning and understanding out of what we've been through, to share the impact of how things have shaped us in our lives. Stories are fundamental to how we get to know one another, aren't they? As we share stories, we develop these emotional connections. We share information, but it's information that's shared in these memorable ways, and it helps us gain a deeper appreciation and understanding for the others, and even through what they've learned, we can actually take those lessons and we can apply them to our own lives as well. I think this is part of why there are so many stories in the Bible. You know, the the Bible is actually over 40% of the Bible is written in narrative form as a story. And I know many of you have tried to read the Bible and you've gotten to the lists of names and places and it's like slamming your boat into the rocks, right? It just crashes the whole thing and you just kind of give up on the whole endeavor of trying to read the Bible. But I just want to encourage you to push through that because there are so many stories in the Bible and actually the Bible itself is one big narrative of the story from creation to the end of time. And through these stories, there's so much to learn about God, to learn about humanity, to learn about ourselves, because often these stories provide a mirror as we see ourselves in these characters, these people, as we learn the lessons that they're learning and try to apply them to our lives. You know, I I grew up in church, and so we'd be there pretty much every Sunday in worship and Sunday school. It was both. And You know, I I got so many of these stories in Sunday school, and I loved them. So many of them had heroes and villains, and, you know, there was failures, and there was battles, and there was kings, and there was chaos. And, you know, the reality is some of the stories in the Bible are not PG, right? And actually just, you know, to pique your interest, they get a little racier than even probably PG-13 at times. So if you don't know those stories, I'm just going to leave that to you to go find them, all right? Go enjoy. But as I got older and started to grow in my faith, I revisited so many of these stories from my childhood. I started reading them for myself in the Bible, and what I found is that there were so many surprising details that had either been left out 
or that I just didn't remember from when I was little. And there were in these stories, they had been taught one way, but I realized as I read them that there was so much more to the stories. There was more depth. There was more humanity. There were more surprises. And eventually, I also came to realize that all of these stories were pointing somehow to Jesus Christ, whether the story was in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And so today we're starting a new sermon series, and this is what this sermon series is all about. It's called More to the Story, Bible Stories You Thought You Knew. Because in this series, we're going to be going through some of the most epic stories from the Bible. And if you grew up in the church, so many of these stories you're going to probably find familiar and beloved, and and that's going to be wonderful. If you didn't grow up in the church, don't have a church background, some of these stories may still be familiar to you because they're so epic that they've just seeped into our cultural memory together. And maybe these stories will kind of give you a nudge to start reading the Bible and see what other stories there are because we're not going to be able to nearly cover all of them. But as we visit or revisit these stories each week, my hope is to be able to lift up some perhaps details that you didn't notice before, to find in it meanings, to find relevance for our lives today that they're not just children's stories, but they're they're stories given for us, for this moment in life. And they're stories that all the time are pointing us to a hope, a grand hope that we can still claim today through Jesus Christ. And so today we're starting with what is truly one of the most epic stories of the Bible, Noah's Ark. Right? If you didn't grow up in a church, you probably are already somewhat familiar with it. Maybe it was from the 2014 Russell Crowe movie, Noah. Right? Not exactly true to the biblical account of the story, but the, the basic elements are there, right? A whole lot of water, a really, really big boat, a bunch of animals, and Noah. Right? That pretty much covers it. So... And I actually remember one of the ways I became familiar with this story and actually so many other stories in the Bible was through something called Salty the Songbook. Anybody remember that? Yeah, this picture. This is Salty the Songbook. Terrifying, isn't it? Salty the Songbook would, would, would share stories from the Bible and would lead kids in songs. And fortunately for me, for my family, we would listen to these on road trips. So it was on cassette. So I had no idea what Salty looked like until many years later, which is probably good because this would be something of the nightmares that we live with, right? <laughs> but, so a little terrifying. But I remember the Noah story and actually one particular song I learned through Salty the Songbook helped tell this story. It was called Arky Arky. And they didn't, they didn't actually make up the song, but it did have a very salty spin to it. So it, it went, the Lord told Noah, there's going to be a floody, floody. Lord told Noah, there's going to be a floody, floody. Get those. I see some of you mouthing the words, so don't leave me up here as if I'm the only one who knows this song. So depending on what version you grew up with, get those children or get those animals out of the muddy, muddy, right? That, and the song keeps going and it tells the story. Build an arky, arky. Make it out of gopher, barky, barky. You know, kind of painful to make the rhymes work at times. And it rained and poured for 40 daisies, daisies, and the animals came on by twosies, twosies, and the sun came out and dried up the landy, landy, and everything was fine and dandy, dandy, yeah. You do know it, see? You were just ashamed. 
was, you know, obviously the rhymes are cheesy and somewhat terrible, but it stuck. It stuck for me. And this was the version of the Noah story that stuck in my mind until I revisited it many, many years later. And I realized that this song, and often the way we've taught this story, shifts the focus of the story to saving these cute little animals, which, of course, the animals on the boat do get saved. But that's not really the point of the story. And the songs don't give any reason why there was a flood in the first place, which is a critical and often overlooked detail. A detail that we've actually already heard read earlier in the first part of the story that Pat read for us as it started in chapter 6 of Genesis. And in verse 11, it said this. It said, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. The earth was corrupt. It was ruined. It was defiled. It was meant to be a place of goodness, of delight, of beauty, of wonder, and it has been soiled. It's been corrupted. Sin had ruined what was intended to be good. And now the earth was full of violence. You know, we don't really get any details of exactly what that means right here in this passage, but if you looked right before the story of Noah, we do get some insight because in chapter 4, we see the story of Cain and Abel. Right after sin had entered humanity, things had been so good, the very first thing, the very next story we see is a story of murder, of violence, of one brother against another coming out of jealousy, hurt feelings, pride. And this was just a taste of the violence that had apparently scattered and spread across the entirety of the earth. And I wonder for us as modern readers, how different are things today? When you think about the headlines that are always before us, we think about the reality that there's now a months-long war continuing in the Ukraine. We see, if you pay attention internationally, genocides happening, actual genocides in various places throughout the world. Certainly in our country, we can't get away from the reality of gun violence the constant stories of abuse, of trafficking, and these are just the physical violence that is being done. Not to mention the, the verbal violence, the emotional violence, right? It, just take a look at social media for a little bit and you just see it is a violent place. And so maybe this story of Noah is not just some story of the distant past, but perhaps is a story that reflects more of humanity today than we originally thought. And when we only focus on saving the cute, cuddly animals, we miss that this is a story about humanity. We miss what it says about perhaps us. And in verse 12 of chapter 6, it said, All the people on earth had corrupted their ways. And what's amazing about this is that if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, things were still pretty good. But in, in chapter 3, Adam and Eve are there in the garden, and they eat from the fruit of a tree that they weren't supposed to eat. And what tree was that? It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they ate the fruit, and so what that meant was they started to understand the difference between good and evil of what was right, what was wrong. But apparently it didn't make any difference. 
Matter of fact, if it made a difference, it just made things worse because as knowledge increased, so did corruption. How can that be? I often think the reality is our hope for humanity is based on an idea that if people just knew, they would change. If, if people would just know, if they knew better, they would do better. If you knew better, you'd be better, right? And we often approach problems of society this way, and we just figure, okay, we're going to educate the problems out of our society. Yeah, but the thing is, they knew better. It just made things, and they did, worse. And have you ever been there? I mean, if we're really honest about it, have you been there? Because we all know that lying is a problem, right? That it breaks down trust, that it hurts relationships, and then yet, do we do it? Sometimes. We try to avoid conflict, right? That's why you get the Geico commercial of Abraham Lincoln and his wife asking him if, he, if she, this dress makes her look fat, and you've got Honest Abe in a real quandary. Sometimes we lie to avoid conflict, to avoid consequences, to get ahead in some facet of our life. We know forgiveness is good. We know that it's God's intent, but we also know, even if you're not a follower of God, that forgiveness is necessary for the ongoing health of relationships because inevitably it's going to be necessary if you're in a relationship long enough, and yet will we give it? Only if it's asked for, and then even then, maybe, maybe not. Because it's probably not really deserved. And see, we know that every life is created by God. We know that every person is created good, very good, in the image of God Himself. And yet, do we value every life and every person that way? Or do we find ourselves easily slipping into bitter criticism do we find ourselves trash-talking, putting people down? Do we find ourselves disregarding some, using people when it's convenient for us? Do we find ourselves condemning those who think different, look different, believe different, act different? Do we find ourselves maybe just apathetic to the struggle and the plight of so many others across the globe? I mean, just yesterday, I saw a statement coming out of the Vatican. Maybe you saw it in response to the Supreme Court decision of Roe versus Wade, reversal. The, the statement was pro-life is not just opposing abortion. It's not enough. To be pro-life would be to truly value every life, to care for all lives that are threatened the way that God cares for them. And is this the way we value people as the church? across the world? Sometimes. See, here's the thing. We can know a lot, but it doesn't necessarily change what we do. That was the case in Noah's day. They knew better, but they didn't do better. All the people had corrupted their ways. The earth was full of violence. And so what's the answer? What's the response to this situation? What should happen? What should God do? Should He let it go? Should you just tell them again what they already knew? No, hoping that if they educate more, people will change, they'll do something? Or should something be done? 
And God decides not just to tolerate it any longer and hope that somehow they would change. They had demonstrated that they weren't going to change. And so God said to Noah in chapter 6, verse 13, I am going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. God made a judgment call. A just judgment call that something needed to be done because though they knew better, they weren't doing better. And for us, maybe this seems harsh. Maybe this seems like God is overdoing it and it's a little bit of overkill, but if we're honest, don't we really need God to respond this way? When we look honestly at how the world works, what's happening around us, don't we need a God who is just, who will respond to the evil and the wickedness in the world justly? Because if not, is there really any hope? And is there really any reason to think that anything should change? See, because if God doesn't make a just judgment, who will? Is there even a such a thing as justice? Because if God's not just, then who's to say that the war in Ukraine is bad? Who's to say that hatred and violence and tribalism and racism is wrong? If there's no objective justice, then there's really no reason for us to be concerned about it. And this is a problem. In our, in our day today, where does our idea of justice come from? Often I think it just comes from our whims, the things that we believe are right or wrong or that really we want or that other people want or if we can get enough people convinced that this is right and that's wrong, then that's what determines justice. And the reality is as secularism continues to grow in our society as we disconnect our worldview from faith and hitch it to other things like science, as we hitch it to other things and we believe that everything that exists, all that really is important is matter itself, that I'm just a combination of my biology and my chemistry stuck together by this grand and amazing happenstance that the universe randomly organized in such an incredible way that we have life. If that is true, if matter is all there is, then there is no justice. Because every decision we make is just a function of our chemistry and our biology. There is no moral grounding or imperative. This is why we need a God who is just or there is no objective justice. Because if I'm just a mix of my chemistry and my biology, then I should just do whatever it is I feel right because that's what my chemistry is telling me to do. And who are you to tell me otherwise? But see, none of us really lives that way. We live with a sense of objective justice. And I argue that this justice comes from a just God who determines what is right and what is wrong, what is good and beautiful for our world. And we need a just God who will respond to wickedness or our victims are simply meaningless victims. And this is the background of the story of Noah and the ark. A just God responding justly to the corruption of the human heart. The heart that knows better but doesn't do better. 
And in the midst of this, Noah appears, and Noah has found favor in God's eyes. And God warns him what he's going to do, what's about to happen, and we see Noah's righteousness, his right relationship with God play out because of what he does next when God makes a crazy request of him. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to build an ark, which is, is not actually a word for boat. It's actually a word for palace. Because then God says, because it's going to rain, and it's going to rain a whole lot, and you're going to need this palace. Because I want you to bring all these animals on it and your family. And I'm going to save you. And estimates are it took, it took Noah 55 to 75 years to complete this project. Just think about that. Have you ever done anything for 55 years? I mean, marriages sometimes last 55 years, and that's a miracle. And it takes a lot of work. 55 years going out day after day to follow through on this project. And initially, it probably wasn't noticeable and any big deal, but because of the size of this boat, eventually, you know, the neighbors started going, what is going on over there? What are you doing, Noah? I'm building an ark. Why? In 55 years, it's going to rain a lot. What? What are you talking about? What an incredible act of faith on Noah's part. There was no evidence that he could point to to say, oh yeah, at this time there's going to be this world-changing flood. All he had was God saying what he was going to do, and he responded with this incredible faith, trust that what God said was true, a faith that changed every moment of every day of his life. And if faith doesn't change every moment of your life, it's not really faith. And that's, that's actually what James says at one point. He says, faith without works is dead. See, we can't just say we believe something and have it not impact the rest of the week. We can't just come together on a weekend and say, yes, I believe it's all about God, and then not have it actually affect our priorities, our decision-making, our values, the way we live on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. And I could keep going, but I know you know the rest of the days of the week, so I won't. Right? That... Our faith is to continue to change the nature of our character to be transformed from the inside out to align our lives with God's plan, his intent and purposes for us and for our neighbors. Faith, is your faith changing the way you live, the way it changed Noah's? So God warns him and then calls him to this incredible, radical, crazy faith. Noah does everything that God said, and then God did exactly what he said he was going to do. So we're going to jump into the end of the story, just so we can make sure we round it out. This is from Genesis 7, and then we'll jump to 9. This is four chapters of the Bible, hard to get it into one message, so I'd encourage you to go read. It's Genesis 6 through 9. Go read it on your own. Find all the details that we're missing today. But it says this. If you want to follow along, you can. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the earth, entire heavens were covered. After the waters have receded, he goes on, God says, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. 
Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I've established between me and all life on the earth. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Forty days, forty nights of rain pounding, clammy humidity, chaos of noise, of rain and thunder and animals all night long. The sound of things slamming against the outside of the ark, some of it you knowing rocks, trees, buildings, others, bodies. God had done what he said he would do. A just response to the corruption, the violence, and the evil. And this isn't what we usually focus on when we tell the story with kids, understandably. (laughs) But I did check through a number of children's Bibles to try to figure out how is this being handled? And actually only one children's Bible that I found even really acknowledged it, and it said it this way. Soon there were no more people. That was it. No more people, except one, except Noah, who by faith was saved. It was his faith that caused him to build the boat that allowed him to be saved and allowed him to then be the beneficiary of a covenant. This is a promise that God has made, a promise never to destroy the earth again, never to destroy it with a flood. And here's the amazing thing. This was a real fear of humanity throughout history, that God was going to wipe out the earth, that the flood was total devastation. And the reason we know this is because there's actually 250 or more flood stories from around the world, different cultures, and some people look at that and they point and they say, well, then, then the flood story of the Bible means nothing. That it invalidates it somehow. Actually, I think it gives it even more credibility and validity because what it's saying is that there is a deep-seated fear that there is a just God who is going to wipe out all of humanity, but God has said, I've done it once and I will not do it again that way. I will not bring a flood over the entirety of the earth. And what that then allows for is a freedom from that fear so that life could be restored, so that humanity could be restored through Noah and his family, so that the animals could be restored. It was really important that one male and one female got on that boat because the animals needed to repopulate as well, right? And so there was this clean, fresh start, and it was marked by this promise, this sign of the promise, which is the rainbow. I don't know what you think when you look at rainbows, some, some think, well, we understand how rainbows work. It's the way light is refracted through the, you know, the water droplets in the sky, and you know, so it's just breaking into its various parts. Is it still not incredible, even if we can explain it? And is it still not possible that God has designed it that way so that we would have a constant visual reminder of the reality of this story? the story that reminds us of God's just response to the corruption and the evil of the human heart, that he is not going to just stand by and tolerate it and let it continue, that he is going to bring his just response, but that there is also hope of salvation and restoration. One commentator noted that it was the possibility that now this destruction was possible, but out of the destruction, it led to the preservation of humankind by the saving of one. Noah, 
the righteous one was saved so that from him could come restoration. What's amazing about this story, though, is that and it's really what we'd expect, that only the righteous one would live, that everyone else would die. But this story was a preview of what was going to happen later, that there would be another one who was truly righteous. There would be another one who would come and live beautifully, perfectly obedient, and that was Jesus himself, the one, only one who was truly righteous from beginning to end. And yet, though Noah was saved, Jesus died. The one righteous one died so that we could all live. This story of the flood has this beautiful and great reversal in Jesus Christ. That the one who was righteous died so that you and I could live even though our hearts are full of corruption. And see, the flood was a, this flood story is also supposed to remind us of baptism that we just celebrated this morning. That that water that goes over the head of a child or of an adult is to be reminded, as 1 Peter 3 tells us, it's like the waters of the flood flowing over. And when we think what the water was for, it was the just condemnation for evil. It was this this condemnation of the old life. And it meant in that, as the flood swept over, the death of the sinful, of the old, of the corrupt, of the evil self, and then out of that comes this resurrection life through Jesus Christ. Baptized into his death, that instead of us having to die the death under that wave and flood of our sin, Jesus died in our place so that we could emerge with his resurrection life within us. And it is received by faith, true faith, faith that changes every moment of every day of your life. What is your faith really in this morning? What are you trusting in to to save you from the just condemnation of a good and holy God? Is it a faith that somehow you're going to know better and do better? Or is it a faith that Jesus, the righteous one, took on the flood of condemnation to the point of death so that you could live. This is the story of Noah for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this epic story that's not just a good story and a good yarn and not just about cute animals, but about your intent and plan for humanity. That you are a God of justice, but you are also a God of mercy. Thank you that, Jesus, you sent your Son to take on our just condemnation that we could have his resurrection life. Lord, may you give us a greater and greater faith that allows, that impacts every day of our lives, changes our values, our activities, our priorities, that we can live to love you and to love as you have loved. In Jesus' name, amen. 